Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back, relax, while James brings you along on his cigar journey. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, sit down with guests from across the industry, and we'll probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This episode, we're going to continue with our sub-series looking at the Cuban people, the Cuban cigar. Uh, and, and actually, this episode is going to focus all on the Cuban cigar. And I'd like to welcome back to the program my co-host for this sub-series, Nick Cirrus, uh, owner of LH Cigars, Master Blender. I know he hates that term. All Master Blenders I, I've ever met hate that term. It is what it is. Uh, and Cuban uh, Cuban expert Nick, welcome back to the program. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. The, the thing I hate about the word master blender, when you think of the word master, you think about somebody, I just picture a guy that's been doing it his whole life, can do it in his sleep, and has m- mastered everything there is to know about it. When it comes to blending, at least for me, I'm far from being a master. They use the term master because I happen to be the blender for my brand and and uh, my cigars. So I technically they call it the master blender, like the first blender, the only blend, whatever you want to call it. But the word master just feels funny when I use it. So anyway, <laughs> I you are not the only uh, uh, blender to say that. Uh, like like I said, most everyone that I call master blender because that's a that's their title. Like they they just they hate it. Like, I'm you know, you also, you also mentioned that this episode is going to be all about the Cuban cigar. I thought this is going to all be about the people of Cuba. It is the people of Cuba. I misspoke. This is going to be all about the people of Cuba. Um, in this sub series, we started with the history of Cuba. This episode is going to be the people of Cuba. Uh, then we'll really start to dive in in the next episode next month into the history of the Cuban cigar. Uh, we'll talk about the innovators of the Cuban cigar after that, modern Cuban cigars, the impact of communism and the U- U.S. embargo on Cuban cigars. Um, we're going to talk about the soils, the farms, like why Cuban cigars. Are, like We have a whole slew of episodes planned for the rest of this year, once a month. Um, I think what I'm going to do, and I, I told Nick this before the show, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to release these on the first of every month. And we'll just make this, you know, if I have more episodes that I can release throughout the month, other than just the first and the 15th, then that's certainly what I'll do. But uh, I'm really excited about this, this series. I think, you know, with Nick, you're, with your expertise, you bring a lot to the table uh, as far as knowledge and, and insight into all things Cuba and all things Cuban cigars. And so I want to make sure that we're um, giving it its, its, its due. I think it's time for us to take a hard look at Cuba, at the Cuban cigars, and everything that surrounds that as aficionados and as enthusiasts in the cigar world and kind of figure out, um, you know, what, what direction we think uh, we're going to head next. But before we get into that, I'd like to invite you to go to OxfordCigarCompany.com. Use coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES. That coupon code will get you 15% off your purchase. That's right. Any purchase, anything you put in your cart, that's 15% off. 
Use coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES at OxfordCigarCompany.com. Psst, excuse us. We've been trying to reach you about your life's traumatic experiences. No, no, don't hit fast forward. We come in peace. I'm Jamie. And I'm Steph. And we're the hosts of the Stay Wild Trauma Child podcast. We are two best friends who are openly sharing their healing journeys while navigating sudden loss, parenthood, relationships, mental health, and so much more. So grab your favorite drink, get cozy, and join us every other Tuesday night for some hard truths, a whole lot of laughs, and maybe even a little bit of healing. We will shut up now and let you get back to your show. Stay wild, future trauma child. All right, so let's jump into the people of Cuba. Now, I know last episode, Nick, uh, it was broken into two parts, and we really we talked the history of Cuba, and there was a lot to that. And that was kind of, for the most part, it was a little dry. We tried to make it as entertaining as we possibly could. But it's a lot of information. But all of that that knowledge that we talked about and all that information we talked about really sets up the people of Cuba. And you know these these people like on a very personal level because you've been there a, a plethora of times uh, in the last, you know, 12 years. And and I think you have a lot of knowledge. You can speak to the people of Cuba. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today. So if somebody came up to you, Nick, and they said, Tell me about the people of Cuba. What would you say to them? I have the answer to that, James. But before I say that, I just wanted to give people an idea of like, you know, you, you talk about Nick, the Cuba expert, the Cuban expert and stuff like that. And, you know, experts, another word that, you know, shouldn't be thrown around too, um, too freely. But this is one term that as far as I can tell, you know, I do fit that bill because simply because of the amount of time and studying of the country, the culture, then the people, I do believe, you know, I've been going there now for minus the two last years that I haven't been there for the pandemic, you know, 12 years, practically monthly. Um, I started doing tours to Cuba, cultural tours, you know, people to people, which is why I think uh, I can talk about the people because I've dealt with the people and, and I got stories. And, and I'm, I like the fact that you know, when we set to do this uh, Cuba series, we talked about starting with the history. And the first thing I said to you, James, was like, well, I don't want to be Professor Nick and I don't want it to be too preachy. But I guess there was no way around it. There's just a lot of information. And, and Cuba has got a hell of a lot longer history than than the United States. You know, they were founded by Christopher Columbus. I mean, you know, how far can we go? You know, the, the, the city of, of Havana is over 500 years old. So there was some history. And you know what? After I got off, I was like, oh, my God, I hardly spoke about Jose Marti. I hardly spoke about this. And I was thinking about all the parts I didn't um, talk about. But that would have made the, the thing even longer. So <laughs> let's talk about the people. And I won't, don't forget your question because it's a question I get often. And it is, hey, how are the people of Cuba? It's, they got to be real asses, right? They really got to hate Americans. And I say, no. Absolutely not. The, the people of Cuba are exactly probably what you don't think they would be. Because I understand, because we haven't had relations, um, diplomatic or otherwise, in so many years, people would think, oh, man, those Cubans must really hate Americans. And it's the farthest from the truth. They love Americans. They embrace Americans. They really want to be, in my opinion, Americans so badly because it's what they're missing. Now, they, they wouldn't want their government to think that, and that's the last thing that they would ever say, but they really do appreciate everything there is. 
I saw such a change um, when Obama announced the changes and Americans started coming. So thankfully, I've gotten to experience the before and after of the onset of American uh, tourists. Uh, and we don't use the word tourists, but, you know, uh, visitors, because any American that goes to Cuba, that's the first thing. You are not a tourist. Tourism is not allowed in Cuba. Right. You're there for a specific reason, and it's one of the nine categories that you can travel there under. And the uh, U.S. government, the State Department, and the Office of Foreign Asset Controls are very clear about what those reasons are. Most people would travel, would have traveled under what they consider the people-to-people or cultural exchange reasons to be in Cuba. However, when you do go there, folks, even though you could buy a ticket and just show up in Cuba— there's a lot of things you have to do to make sure you don't uh, potentially get in any kind of trouble with the U.S. government. And the main thing is you have to keep notes. You have to have the, the most important thing is you have to have a program, a full time program and generally one that's guided full time. It's not like, hey, let's go explore on our own and, and go to the beach and lay on the sand. That's very, very explicitly forbidden. It's there to meet when you're doing the, the, the Cuba travel tours and all that stuff. And I'll mention that before I get into the people, the whole category support for the Cuban people, you know, the whole idea of that is to have an increased dialogue and just to make meaningful connections with the people of Cuba because the U.S. government, and I sure as hell believe this too, that, you know, our worlds are interconnected, every culture. And by really letting them see what we're about, what America's about, what democracy is about, it's going to transform the very people that we're visiting and they seem to understand. And, and Americans that travel to Cuba, you know, and make many meaningful connections with what you would say ordinary Cubans. And in the same time, you're supporting civil society in Cuba. You want them to understand what it's like outside of that island. That's the whole point of it. Right. So, well, there's, there's, there's a couple of things that you said there that I kind of want to, I want to unpack real quick. The first thing that you said is, is, is that they embrace uh, Americans, the, uh, the the Cuban people embrace Americans, and and, and they don't hate us. And I find that <laughs> I, I find that odd. And, and honestly, Nick, to be quite frank, I find it a little hard to believe, just based on uh, the prevalent attitudes around the world towards Americans. Uh, We're not typically for you know the most the part. Di- you know what the difference is, James? What? No, they that's, have, that they have no experience with Americans, where the rest of the country and the opinions of the rest of the world about Americans, unfortunately, you know, may or may not be things that some of us would like that reputation to be of. But Cuba and the people of Cuba, you know, clean slate. They have no uh, prior experience or anything to base a lot of the rumors, a lot of the stereotypes of Americans on. That might be true for the um, for the latest generation, for the last couple of generations, maybe. But you know, we talked about this in the last episode. America has, since it's been around, has always meddled in in the affairs of Cuba, like always. And whether it was propping up Batista or or whatever, what like we've always like Cubans have always been the pawn of somebody else. And since the U.S. has become a superpower, I think they're the closest to us. They have become a pawn of ours. Uh, and then you know the Soviet Union and now China and so on and so forth. So, again, I find it hard to believe that especially the older generation doesn't hold any animosity towards the United States, especially those who, uh, you know, were there 
during the Batista era, because I'm sure there are some that are still still alive, and they're they are yeah, they they're, remember they're they remember old. that the U.S. not only abandoned them to Castro, but then put an embargo on them that in many ways constrains them uh, even further than what what the the, the communist uh, party does there. Well, you have to understand that the people that were around during the Batista era, for the most part, you know, things were flourishing during that era. There was money there. There was a lot of tourism. Like we mentioned, that was the Vegas before there was a Vegas. And a lot of the people, the underlying, you know, feeling was like, you know, these Americans are taking over this country. They're being made it a cesspool of, of everything there is. So, that's why initially I think a lot of the people there were very, very um, pro-revolution and supported. I would say that a lot of these people supported Castro and the whole idea of a revolution um, because they wanted a change. Now, yeah. like anything else, sometimes people get in and may have one intention when they start and another one happens and things started turning real quickly and these people that supported them then we're, you know, leaving the country in droves, the ones that could and the ones that had to stay kind of just had to stay. And, um, yeah, I don't think they blame America for that. They blame the revolution for that. And unless they're really drinking the Kool-Aid there, because there is a lot of propaganda, just like we have our own propaganda here well, in the of U.S., course, absolutely. you know, they tell you that every problem that was caused, everything that's wrong with Cuba uh, is because of the Americans and because of the embargo, which, you know, they call the blockade, you know, the block that basically America did this to you. America is the bad guy here. And you know what? Of all the people that I met, and I'm telling you, I met a lot of people through the years. Nobody seemed to believe that. Nobody said it's because of you Americans and your country that we don't have what we need. But you know what? The reality is it's partially true, right? Because because of the embargo, it's made it very, very difficult for them to have basic necessities and things, you know, that they need. Um, but at the same time, the reason for the embargo, what the intent was to make it very difficult so they would change their ways. But right. they were very resistant. So they, when everybody else in the whole world is willing to sidestep it, you know, and they don't care. So it makes it a little bit more difficult. It makes it more expensive, but it really didn't do anything. I think what the true essence or what the embargo was supposed to do for us and what, what was supposed to do for, for Cuba. But what it did do, in my opinion, is because of that embargo, it made them flourish there. It made them stronger there. And uh, they were able to do what they did for all these years. So in my opinion, the embargo in so many ways had the exact opposite effect of what it was supposed to do. And that really is unfortunate. And some of the unfortunate aftermath of that is that the people more than anybody are the ones that suffer, suffer today and suffered through all these years. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and on that note, I kind of want to, I want to look at what the, uh, the, the expats, the Cuban expats think, because a lot of this play, it's, it's politics to the nth degree, and, and and I want to talk about this because you have the expats, the Cuban expats, who are vehemently for the 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 embargo. Keep it in place. Like we've got to, we've like they think that this is how we're going to get communism out of there. Though even though it hasn't worked since it's been up, 
Um, and, and, and probably not all of them, but uh, the majority of them seem to be for that. And they, and there's not, is there, is there a big rift between the uh, Cuban expats and the Cuban people on the island? Like, is there animosity between those two groups of people? I would say yes. And I would say even the latest Cuban immigrants that we've had here in this country in the, the last generation or so, they are so much for more removing of the embargo and lifting of the embargo, which is in complete contrast to the majority of the Cuban Americans that have been here from the revolutionary days to now. Sure. In fact, in the cigar industry, the cigar world, as people know, anybody that smokes cigars, and if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you do. Um, that's who we, we're talking to. <laughs> right. Most people understand um, that there's a lot of Cuban background. And that's why people are even interested that smoke cigars. That's what made me initially be interested in Cuba was because of my love for cigars. And if you know cigars, you know that Cuba has something to do with it. We talked about the history of it last episode and all the Cuban people that left the island and moved on to other countries and continued their trade and their, uh, their, their craft, they, for the most part, are 100% behind the embargo. And I'm saying maybe 99%. Only the, the, the relatively younger generation of Cubans believe that that maybe has not had what it is. Now, I understand a lot of the cause. And I... I don't want to say I'm openly about this because I'm not really about politics and I'm not here to argue or present my case against or for. And, and I just want a big kumbaya with every other you know, person in this industry. And that's what, to me, the magic of the leaf does. But I understand the plight. I understand that you know a lot of harm and wrongdoing has been done by the, the, the Cuban government. And a lot of people were you know, individually and, and, and collectively injured, not only physically, emotionally, it, it caused a lot of havoc. I mean, I know families that have lost people that, that were tortured, killed, not nice things happened. You know, it's, yeah. it's not, you know, they took their properties. I mean, how do you feel against that? The, 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 the sentiment is overly very, very aggressive and uh, against, and, and I understand it. And I, and I'm not trying to take away any of that or say that it's not correct. What I'm saying is that, unfortunately, the embargo, even the intent of the embargo when it was put in place, nobody foresaw it going this far. Nobody had no. an intent, and it was not justified because it did the opposite effect. It empowered, in my opinion, the government to continue, and the people of Cuba are the ones that were basically the most injured. But sadly, you know, their relatives that came here, you know, they supported, for the most part, they supported the people there. And if it wasn't for their, their families and relatives in the United States, these people would not even be able to live today. When I read statistics that the number one GDP, you know, the gross national profit of how money comes into that country over any other industry or is people sending remittance back to their family. Mm -hmm. So the people here, the Cubans in America and other parts of the world need to send money back to their relatives in Cuba for them just to survive, just to live. That, and, and so much money has been sent there, you know, and it's still not enough, but it's enough for them to not starve. But yet now in the last couple of years, we know that the Trump administration has made some changes that I believe 
the Cuban expats are 100 percent supportive, including, you know, Senator Rubio. And they're mm -hmm. trying. I get it. They're trying to choke out the, the government that's there. But guys, it hasn't worked. It's 50 plus years. Do you really think they just don't want to put money into the Cuban government? Markets? But at the same time, realize that the cause of that has caused the people problems. And, and you know, when I talk to people, they go, you know, every time you go to Cuba, you know, you're putting money in the Cuban government's pockets. And I'm like, look, I realize that that happens. The end result is everything flows some way. But I'd like to say I put it to them through the people of Cuba. I try to give the money directly to the people. I use private houses, private restaurants, private cabs, you know, dealing with Cubans. I try to put my money and the people that I've done tours to Cuba with into the people's money so they can buy food, so they can buy things that they need. And yes, ultimately things do go back to the, to the, to the Cuban government, but that that's part of it. Like every, you know, there, you know, people will explain to you and they're not wrong. Listen, every time you, you get on a plane, there's a fee that goes not only to the Cuban government, but to the airport, which is owned by the Cuban government. And everything you do there goes to the Cuban government. I go, yes, I understand that. But, you know, the Trump, the Trump changes to me, which I think were kind of silly. To tr I think they were just intended to look like things were different, but they weren't. They, they have a list of certain initially with certain hotels and properties that you were not allowed to go because those were controlled by the government arm that was, in essence, the military arm. And so if you went to that particular hotel, the money went directly to the military. Well, right. I try to explain to people that don't really understand what's going on. I look at it and coming from Jersey and, you know, I guess there's a stereotype, a stereotype to that. But the mob <laughs> is kind of known to be in New Jersey and or at least the essence of it. And yeah. I and Cuba has a long history with with organized crime. So the way I look at it to make people understand is it's almost like you have three crime families. Each crime family has a part of it. So the military is one. The head of the military says, okay, this is my crime family. I need to get money into to, to pay for my things. The other guy is this, the crime family of this, and the other guy is the crime family of that. The military crime family says, okay, and they divvy it up. They go, okay, we have, you know, 10 hotels here. I'll take these three. You take those three. You know, we'll do this. So does it really mean, you know, like normally in like normal governments, they have one big, you know, thing and they don't have... <laughs> hotels and shops which right. are owned by the military it goes to the government and then they have budgets and then the money goes to to where they need it well the way the cuban government works is they have the military arm that represents these these properties these uh, shops these uh industries and so yes it's going directly to the military as opposed to the government and to the military but at the end of the day it's all going to the government so yeah. by saying you can't stay at these properties and you can't go to these shops because it goes to the to the military, to me, that's silly. And now they've cut off where, you know, now Americans are not allowed to go to any hotels, which makes a better sense. You know, if you're really going to talk about it, don't go to any hotels. Go go to the private houses. But then they just slapped Airbnb with a whole bunch of stuff, and now they're gun-shy. I don't think they're going to operate there anymore because, you know, they tell them it's, yeah. it's, it's like a dual message. You can do it, but then don't do it. Um who was it? Four Points opened up a hotel in, in Cuba in conjunction with the Cuban government. They sunk all this money. They they built this hotel. And now they're saying, oh, no, now you can't use it. So it's like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm sure they can absorb it. You know, the Sheridan group can absorb it. But, 
you know, you told me I can open a business there. I can do what I want. And then a year later they go, Oh no, you know what? We changed our mind. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I just spent <laughs> X amount of dollars. You know, yep. it's not like the government, the U S government's going to subsidize or, or reimburse me. So a lot of that has been going on and it's, it's a very, very, you know, different message that they're sending, but I want to try to focus because there's so many things we're going to talk about. The main thing I want, if there's one message that I can tell you about the Cuban people is that Cubans are some of the friendliest people you will meet in the world. They'll talk to anyone, everyone. They're very generous of their time. And that's what makes this country the most special. It's the people. And if you really want to understand the complex cultural fabric of Cuba, you got to start with the people. It all starts with them. Um, the one thing I did do, because I wanted to make sure my my statistics were correct, so I went and I looked because I wanted to give you an idea of the general makeup of the Cuban people. And here's what uh, they tell me, uh, Wikipedia or whatever it is, that 30%, 37% of the Cuban popula uh, population is white. You know, And basically all these people are the ancestors of the Spanish descent. So 37%, right. you know, remain 11 percent is black which is not too far from our own country here as far as percentage wise and then the difference there though is this 52 percent of the population is a mixture of white and blacks so they call them mulattoes mulatto is a big term and it's basically somebody that comes from a mixed background I think eventually in the United States, that's what we're going to look like. Our population will look like we're supposed to be the big melting pot. And there, because they had higher percentage, you know, you have your Hispanic, which is a nest, uh, the, the, uh, the locals. And they came from, you have to understand that where, where did these people originally come from? Well, you know, Cuba fed its own slaves in 1988, but it was up until like the thirties that everything was open, you know, to, to, um, there was no real racism there. You know, the institutions yeah. and pe people of color were treated exactly the same. What really changed over there was in the 40s and 50s, the businesses that were there, they really wanted to appeal to the American visitors because it was the hotspot, you know, because we're so close to the United States. Americans don't like to travel too far away. That was being close, but yet you know, in a different country. So they really catered to the American visitors for so many years. And then, of course, they ended up adopting a form of racism that was very prevalent in the United States back then. So a lot of the multiracial Cubans and the blacks, they were even banned from going to hotels and clubs back then. And that's not the first time Cubans were banned. You know, I'll talk about closer to present day how they were banned. You know, after the revolution, you know, Castro came in and actually institutionalized um, and made a, like they wanted to ban racism. You know, they wanted equality. That was the whole idea. You know, communism on paper yeah. looks great. You know, everything is equal. They were all the same. Yeah, looks great on people. But in actuality, we know it doesn't work or it's proven it hasn't worked. But anyway, they were trying to, um, you know, prevent or stop racism. And it was very open. It's still very open there. Marriage between blacks and whites is very common over there. That's why you have so many mulattoes. Um, the people there are much more friendly and accepting of all races and ethnicities. So, you know, the Afro-Cuban um, culture is very big and is not looked down upon. And there's not really the same kind of racism. That was then. 
I do, and I have to say, and it's not a very pleasant thing, but I did notice from talking to a lot of the present-day Cubans that I see racism there is getting to be a bit more than I was expecting. You know, because because really? of, because of the the di- because of the diversity of that country. You know, when more than fifty percent is a mix, you would think they would be like, oh yeah, no, but you really, you really, you see it. Um, I have some very nice, um, you know, black-colored Cuban. Um, friends there and they're the ones that tell me he goes nah you know you know we kind of accept it we see it but uh, you know and, and they are super nice about it i hate to say i'd be very you know like it's not like here you know and and, and they shouldn't be but they no they shouldn't it. be like they, they they accept it and i'm like wow that's terrible some of the stories and things that they tell me and then unfortunately it gets affirmed by me by talking to certain you know you know people that are just just well, let me ask nice. you this. Yeah. Do you think that that, that they let that happen? That they, I mean, for lack of a better word, allow that to happen uh, to them just because. And again, you can go back to the history of Cuba that we talked about last week, but they're always under somebody's thumb. They're always in some way, shape or form being oppressed or taken advantage of all, all through, throughout its history. Do you think that that's just. And, and I know this will just be conjecture on your part, but with, with your knowledge, do you think that they allow that racism to, to kind of take hold because it's just like, well, it's just another form of oppression, I guess. Like it's, it, are they that downtrodden? That's exactly what I believe because they're, you, you, they just go about their day and they accept it. And that's just something else that they accept. It, it drives me nuts to when I walk by and I see these long lines, they're so used to standing in lines to get their government subsidies. They have to wait in this line to do this. They have to, and they just accept it and they stand there and they have to, cause there's no other choice. So it's just yeah. one other thing that they have to do now because of this uh, racism that does occur there right now, generally speaking, you know, the Afro Cubans are poor, slightly more poor than even the whites and the whites are not exactly, you know, I was going to say large over there, you know what I mean? Right. But there's even, not a lot of wealth in that country outside of those in, in power. But even you can even see it that there's you know fewer positions in government and universities that are, are um, you know, the, the, the black Cubans that are out there. And because of their history, I mean, you know, the first people that inhabited Cuba that we discussed about in, in the last episode were the Sibone, which is a, kind of an Amerindian type of people. And then, the more known, at least to us, cigar smokers are the, are the Taino. And they were really the first population. And they pretty much were the inhabitants of Cuba and all the other islands in the Antilles. And, and then Christopher Columbus came there and in 1492, as we all know. And then that was it. Boom. You yeah. had the Westerners and you had the, um, the indigenous people until they wiped out the indigenous people. But kind of everything stayed the same until like 1902. Um where it was a Spanish colony, so to speak, briefly held by the uh, British, uh, as we talked about. And then the British returned it, you know, and they got Florida in exchange. And then the U.S. has always had their sight on Cuba. Always. And, always. Uh, since the beginning. And so we had the big Spanish-American War. And even though, you know, Cuba got their independence in 1902, at least formally, the U.S. kind of always kind of controlled it, and I think they always knew that. 
and that's why there was such resentment from the governments there, and I can see why, because we kind of well, played sure. this game with them. Yeah, we played a game with them. We should either it should either have been a Puerto Rico or just let them do what they want to do, but it was too important to us. So that's another reason why we have all these problems over there, you know. Right. And that's and I, that's kind of the the whole issue is the US has done this to themselves and to the people of Cuba, uh by fostering this this uh you know ill will from the from the government there like that's I, the the u.s has done this to themselves but that's neither here nor there Let, let's talk about the people nick what does a what does a typical day in cuba for uh, uh you know someone who lives on the island for a cuban what does that look like and then for a visitor like, do they get to see that typical day or is everything? Because I know like when you go to some of these countries like Vietnam or Cuba, like you you basically are shown what they want you to see and not necessarily what's actually happening. That's very true. Um, but what you do see and what they're very proud of, the Cubans are very proud people. They're obviously very resilient and they're really smart. Um, and they brought so much to the world. I mean, their main thing, their culture and traditions that the rest of the world, everybody knows about Cuban music, you know, Cuban dancing. I mean, they, they're so well known uh, all over the world for their dance. You know, the Latin styles that they have, you know, the, the mamba, the salsa, the, that kind of stuff. That all started in Cuba. All the origins of the Cuban music can be found because of the mix of the Spanish and the West African cultures. But Cuban music is what people love. So I think that's probably their biggest export. The second is like Cuban cigars that they're well known for. But the people themselves, to answer your question, no, you don't really see the everyday Cuban life that you're there unless you go. If you go there and do an official tour, which is pretty much every tour that's offered. Um, and, and of course, they wanted me to do tours using the official guides that they have. And even though like my tours are just me and I say my 12 close friends that I bring every month there. Um, they, they watch, they watch you. They want to see what you're doing. And, and you know what? I make it very clear when I'm there, look, I'm not here to try to, you know, circumvent or, or overthrow your government. I'm not here right. to cause any harm. I'm here to experience your culture and your people. And anything that happens because of that is, is a one-on-one. It's the, and every one of my tours, everyone that goes to Cuba literally falls in love with Cuba because of the people. You know, these are people that literally have nothing. Uh, and yet, you know, they are so, for the most part, happy. This is what amazes me the most. Here we have, you know, all kinds of things, uh, material things. And yeah, you know what, they, they succumb to that there too. And, and one quick side note the thing that cracks me up is, you know, Cubans literally barely can, you know, the average Cuban, you know, is trying to put food on the table and just make ends meet. But I chuckle when I see like every Cuban now with an iPhone and I'm like, how are these people getting, uh, why are they getting, uh, is that really important? You know, is it so, all government subsidized? Does Is the communist no, government just no, giving not, out iPhones? No, not at all. Not at all. Here's <laughs> what's so sad. You know, they will, they will do what they can. And it comes from the people that go there, you know, that, that are bringing the phones there. 
um, they will like rather have an iPhone than you know eat for a month or whatever the case, or buy new clothes. <laughs> they just are obsessed with the iPhones. And well, I mean, that's uh, I'll tell you, that's not unlike the culture here in America. And and the best way that I can I can kind of describe what I'm talking about is like when I was growing up, if you were poor, if you didn't have a lot of money, if you didn't if you didn't come from a lot, you didn't have cable, you you didn't have like the newest shoes. Your clothes came from Goodwill. I mean, look, look, I lived this, right? Like, I know what it was like to 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 have that kind of stuff. Not to say that we grew up uh, poor, but I think everybody goes through hard times. So you didn't have all of those things. Now, poor looks a lot different in 2022 than it did in, in the 70s and the 80s, and even uh, to some extent the, the early 90s. It it's it's if you're poor, you still have maybe you don't have cable, but you certainly have a streaming service. You have several TVs in your house. Uh, all with remote controls, which was not around when when I was uh, a kid growing up. Uh, you have you've got the latest phone, you've got the latest shoes. You still look like you dress nicely. You don't like it's a, just different here in America when you think about what poor is now. But when you think about poor in Cuba, I would have never thought that they were running around with <laughs> with iPhones. Yeah, you know I, I'm chuckling still because you said. You know, you have TVs with remote control. And and the funny thing, I keep thinking of, it's a side note, but I don't know if you ever watched Borat. You know, there was an episode and he's like, oh, I bring you to my country. I give you television with remote control. <laughs> and I just laughed. I go, that's all I thought of. But it's like so funny because that's how important in the beginning, having a remote control. Who was the remote control when I was a kid growing up or, or was, people, you were the remote yeah, control. You guys said, right. turn the channel, you know, you'd get go, up go and turn change the, the channel. channel. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. I need you to move those antenna because, I, you know, I'll, I'll let you know when to stop because the reception's reception. not that great. Yeah. So, okay. So, so they, they are like, they do have a different, they are poor. They are very so, poor. Like, here's the thing. Don't focus. They are. And I want to make no bones that they do not have the income or have the potential to make income no. now they're, they're getting better at it you know the and the only way is because of tourism you know if you have some type of business whether it's legal or le- illegal it has to cater to tourism because their fellow you know cubans aren't the ones that that have the money so they have to cater their business to so they're starting so capitalism is, yeah. is starting to take hold and believe it or not there are some but very small percentage that are doing really well there, like like on our standards and then some. But here's the key. If you have money there, you got to be on the down low. Once you're on the radar, you're a target and you're not going to have money for very long. And I've seen that happen time and time again. Wow. But the But the essence, you know, you asked me what it's like, you know, when you get and you arrive at the airport, when you're driving around in the city, and you're looking and you're seeing people everywhere. They're hanging out. And here's the general thing that I got. These people are happy. I and was going to say that. They have nothing. Gonna... You know, they're playing baseball. Not with a baseball or a bat, but with a, a rolled up sock and tape and a stick. But they're yeah. still having fun. Um, they're talking. They're hanging around with their friends. And, and like, all right, there's all kinds of clubs and, and bars and stuff, again, for the tourists. What did the Cubans do? Here's here's this sums it up. On a Friday night or a Saturday night, when all Cubans, you know, you go people here go to the clubs, they go out, they go to uh, restaurants, they spend money. What do they do? 
there's an area of Cuba that you've seen in every picture. There's a, basically a seawall that uh, surrounds, you know, the city, and it's called the Malecon. The Malecon just means seawall, and it's just basically the main street that goes up there, and there's a big seawall. And, and on a, any given weekend, even during the week, but on a, it's like wall-to-wall people. And this seawall goes for miles, and there will be wall-to-wall people. People will just grab a six-pack of beer or whatever they're drinking, you know, their rum, and they'll sit on there. They'll have their little boom boxes going, their little whatever, and they'll be out there dancing, drinking, and socializing. And that requires very little money. And they're enjoying into the wee hours of the night. And they're just where the, the, the scenery is amazing. You have the sea crashing up on the wall. And it's just iconic in so many ways. But what grabs me is these Cubans, you know, you see a lot of times what, because it's, you know, uh, lack of air conditioning or what have you. People are sitting yeah. on their on their door stoops or outside there. They have it, but they're outside anyway. You know, they're sitting outside their houses they mingle with their neighbors. How often in the United States people don't even know who their neighbors are or don't don't even bother to introduce themselves? Uh, or don't or don't want to know, right? Like yeah, it's a we're, we're, cocoon. Yeah, we've become very antisocial, and it seems like because you're not the first person uh, uh, that have said that has said this that I've I've heard. So I've been uh, reading Nick Hammond's uh, uh, book Around the World in Eighty Cigars, and he talks extensively about Cuba and the Cuban people and. Uh, you know how on the weekends that's you, they go to that wall and they sit down and they drink and they have a good time in the Tropicana. Like everybody knows the Tropicana, right? Like that is that is uh, it's famous, it's infamous. Uh, yes, yes. And, and they on the weekends they go to that. Yeah. And they and they have a good time and they are happy. They are just generally happy despite not having money, despite being under uh you know the uh, an oppressive regime. They're 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 happy. Nick Hammond and I actually met in Cuba many years ago. I consider him a dear friend, and we've had some great experiences in Cuba together with the Cuban people. Again, we have another common thread, which is cigars. We both love cigars. He's from England, and and um, he, that book is fantastic, and I highly recommend his book as well. For a little plug for Nick Hammond. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're 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 hopefully by the time this comes out, I'm hoping he's already been on the podcast. But right, as of right now, time travels hard. Uh, we're, we're, I'm trying to nail down a, a date and time with, with uh, Mr. Hammond to get him on. Proper Brit. Like he, he's, uh, I believe he's uh, near London. And so it's a six-hour time difference. But we're trying to set that up. But you're right. It is a great book. It is a fun read. And he does have a, 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 an extensive chapter on Cuba. And he talks about the Tropicana and, and that the, these people do seem to be generally happy. And, and, and when we think about that as an American or as Americans, it's, it's hard. I, for me, it's hard to wrap my mind around. Cause I know compared to the majority of the world, well, like I, I am, I am, well, I'm wealthy compared to the majority of the world. I am, I am wealthy. No, but, no, but, 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 but if, if, if I am suddenly thrust into the situation that the Cuban people are where you don't have AC because that, that's a luxury there here. It's almost commonplace. If you don't have AC and you're not making money and you don't have the latest, you know, shoes or the, the, the clothes or whatever, like, would you really be happy? But these, these people have found a way to be happy despite all of the, the hardships that they have. 
most important thing for Cubans in general, since money is really, and it's almost in some ways, you know, yeah, you can villainize or, or say money can the root of evil and all these phrases. And you know what? There's some truth to that, you know, because the lack of money makes you really just embrace what really should be important to every one of us. And that's relationships. And the other thing, as far as what I would say about Cubans in general, is that what's so important to them is their relationship, engaging with one another, with the world. And it's the exact opposite of what we think of, you know, people being very isolated in, in, in a cold social climate. Their, their most important relationships are with their own families and their friends, and they put those above everything else. So, you know, as a, a visitor and you go there and you see this, you can't help but notice and go, wow, these people are really. And, and then you get to know them and and they're so what little they have, they share with you. They're very generous. Um, it, it really one of the reasons why I continue to do these Cuban tours. OK, it's my love of cigars and introducing people to cigars. But for me, it's being able to see the new person, the person that's never visited that island and get to see through their eyes what I've gotten to see. And it's very touching to see these people that have nothing are willing to share with you and, you know, embrace you and get to know you. And it's, it's sometimes, you know, people tell me their experience in Cuba is, you know, life changing or at the very least so entertaining that they'll never forget. And it's true. And when people say, what is Cuba like? I go, you know, oh, it's, is it like traveling back in time? Yeah, it is. You know, is it like this? Is it like that? I go, it's like being on a different planet. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, there's no place like it on Earth. And what amazes me is, yeah, I feel like I go through a time portal every time I get in. And, you know, you get a short, quick flight from, you know, South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. You're there in an hour. And you're like, oh, my God, you just feel like you've you know, gotten off the plane in some magical land that is so different and, you know, so interesting, some so sad and something so great. I, I love getting there every time I get there. I, I get a sense of joy and I've gone so many times, you know, over a hundred plus times, but every time I land there, I'm happy. I get this generally joyous feeling of like, wow, of course that goes with lighting a cigar immediately that, you know, I get my driver. And when I say my driver, I'm, I'm not Mr. You know, uh, you know, Trump driving around with a, with a limo. Everybody there, you get a driver. You get a driver, whether it's your cab driver or anybody else, and they become your friends. Um, and here's because being a cab driver, being able to have access to a car, whether it's private or government, is such a, a luxury because that's how they make money. The, the, yeah. driver, the, the cab drivers... You talk to them, you find out that they're physicists, they're nuclear scientists, they're doctors, they're, they're all kinds of educated people, and yet they'll drive a cab on their days off or at night just to make some money to live. And that's what's sad. They will do anything there because they are very resilient. They're not, you know, there is, okay, there is some subsidies. There's no welfare, welfare as we know it here, but yes, they get, you know, X uh, a, a loaf of bread in their what they call their basket every uh, you know week or they get or month they get their cheese they get their their eggs their bread um, at a very not free it used to be free then there was a slight cost to it 
which for us you would think it was free because of the, the way the money comes out. But even that, right. the, you know, because I've been following what's going on there, those prices, they used to be a fraction of what a Cuban made a month. Now it's like 80% of what they make a month. So there's nothing left. And they give you your allotment for the, for the month. And then that may only, but what they give you is maybe good for maybe nine, 10 days. So then you got to figure out what you're going to do for food for the other 20. Um, and they're all out there hustling, you know, uh, there's well, and I out. think that I think that's a good segue to go into what you you talked about on a podcast that that you were on with me last year, where you said the Cuban people work to steal. Yeah, that is a phrase that I've used, and some people have taken it a bit out of context. But you know what? I stand by that statement. And the joke of it is, if I ever wrote a book about Cuba and its people, it would be called "I Work to Steal." <laughs> I work to steal. Yeah, I work to steal. And people go, "What the hell does that mean?" And let me tell it to you and sum it up in, 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 a, in, a, in a quick sec here. What it is, is most people, you know, prior to the last 10, 20 years, everything was government jobs because there was no such thing as private enterprise or private business. So all the money flowed from the U.S., from the, uh, the Cuban government. So you were paid by the Cuban government. Now there are private businesses, but that's still a very small percentage. So, okay, everybody works for the government one way or the other. You go to work. You're paid a fraction of what people go, oh, but, you know, if that's what they pay, that's what they can live on. No, it's not. They give you this this penance of a, of a, a slight income that barely can get you by. If it's one thing, if you said, oh, I only need $100 to live a month and you can literally live on $100, then you know what? 100 is fine. But they're giving you, let's say they're giving you 10 cents, but you need $100. How are you going to make up the difference? Yeah. So what the Cuban people have figured out is I don't care what your job is. I don't care what you're, um, what you're doing. Somehow you're figuring out how to make money. And even though, generally speaking, I find the Cubans to be a very honest people. I really do. They, you know, okay, poverty breeds crime, breeds, you know, potential problems. But in essence, you know, they're not out to rob, steal, or cheat you, you know. Yeah, they're trying to make a buck. But a lot of times you'll be surprised, you know, they're not going to steal your camera. These are people that that camera could represent, you know, a uh, half a year's, you know, food for them. But they're not going to. Not the Cubans I've met. I'm sure like in everything else, there's a percentage of what have you. But, you know, of course, yeah. they, they're not. So I don't want to give people the idea that Cubans are all crooks and they and they work to steal just to. No, they steal. Well, no, I. Because I think they, it's it, it it's ingrained in their culture, and I'll give you an example, Nick, and you can maybe speak to this a little bit. Just to bring it back to cigars, I was I was uh, went over to uh, Randy's house. Uh, he's one of our, our reviewers here at simplystogies.com now, um, and you can go check out his his latest review on the website. But uh, he's he had some uh, cigars because he went on a trip with you to to Cuba, if I remember correctly, and he. He was like, hey, I got these cigars, uh, and they were like Cohiba Maduros, okay? And I'm like, all right, well, are these real or fake? He's like, I, I don't know. I got them off. I think I got them from the street. I don't really know. He's like, but you know, they they let them take X amount every, you know, every month from the from the factories. Is that true? That like it's so ingrained. They're like, you can you can basically just take. Well, uh, not, this, not quite this, um, not this quite amount. Take. But... No, no, I okay. wouldn't say quite take. Now, a lot of, and I always, 
uh, discourage, you know, my tour goers and they all become, you know, my, I call them my alumni of, of my tours and a lot of them I'm very good friends and still talk to to this day. I discourage buying a lot of these cigars off the street for many reasons because you really don't know what you're putting into your body. And then I, I open them up and show them what is there. Now, having said that, there is potentially some really good cigars you can get that are unofficial from Habanos because of the reason you just said. When it started out, Cubans, the, the torcedoros that worked for these factories were allowed initially to have one Cuban cigar a day. And then that became two a day. And now it's five a day. So every Cuban who works a day, he gets the, the equivalent of a dollar. And that's really to kind of give you a rule of thumb there. Every Cuban there makes about a dollar a day for a full day's work. That's it. So you yeah. can't live on a dollar a day. So no. what do they do? They get their five cigars. We were talking about one sector. Have you, have you picked, you know, what is this employee does? How does this guy? And I can tell you how they make money. So the Torcedor, since, since we're talking and we're on cigar stuff, here's how they make money. They get five cigars a day. So they're allowed to take five cigars. So what they'll do is they don't, they're not going to go on the street and sell those five cigars themselves. And usually trying to sell single sticks doesn't work either. So what, what goes on there is they'll wait and they'll get their 25 cigars or the equivalent of a box. Then they'll, for lack of a better word, we'll call them, they'll get an agent to be the street peddler to actually sell their cigars for them. So there's a whole black market there of boxes, whether they're stolen or fake entirely, fake bands or stolen. And they'll get right. those cigars are the exact same quality, minus the quality control, which is very limited there anyway, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so right. they'll get those 25 cigars. They'll give them to their, their buddy that's going to sell them on the street. And then they will go to every tourist they find and see what they can get for whatever price, which would be a fraction of what the official prices of Habanos would be. And sometimes if you get some of those cigars, yeah, you're getting, you're getting fantastic well, cigars. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to that, like that was the whole point of me going uh, and hanging out with Randy at his, at his houses. We, we actually took one of those Cohiba Maduros and we, we dissected it because he's like, well, what's in here? Is this actually, is it good? Or, or is it not like, is this something that was taken from the factory or is this something that somebody, you know, like, is it floor sweepings? And sure enough, uh, and, and you can go to uh, simplystogies.com uh, uh, and, and look for that. There's going to be, uh, by the time this comes out, there should be a, an article up about, uh, you know, fake Cubans, um, you know, how to spot them, what should you do and what, what, what a actual Cuban that's not sold uh, from Habano SA looks like on the inside. It's all Long filler. It looks. It looked very nice. So my, my guess is that this is what that was. That's my guess because it was. It looked like a cigar, a very good cigar. And so we lit up a couple of uh, of those Cahiba Maduros, and they were very, very good. I, I think um, on the flip side of that, I did that one time in Cuba for for a client of mine who bought these, and like, hey, I just got this from the street. The guy took me around this back corner, and I'm like, <laughs> are you crazy? You know. And here's what he gave me. And the, the band looked good. The rappers generally look good. And I go, look, let me buy one of those for you. From you. And he said, no, no, please tell me what you think of it. So I opened it up. And let me tell you, that it was like sawdust. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> it, it looked so nasty. And I said, you were going to smoke this. You were going to put this in your body. Look what you're doing. 
And the guy goes, oh, my God. Oh, I, I'll, I'll never not listen to you again. It's not like I don't care if you what you spend on it. I'm not in the cigar. I'm not in the cigar business there. I'm here. I am. But I'm like, I don't <laughs> care where you're where you're buying it. I, I want you to get the best stuff, you know. And unfortunately, right. I can only recommend, you know, the, the official shops and Habanos because the rest of it, I don't know from Adam, you know. Um, so but some people venture out and do that. And, you know, sometimes you can get something that's very good and smokable. What, what's really cool, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this on this show or not, the Cubans themselves, and they, and they really get mad, the, the, the Cuban shops get mad at me when I tell this story, but it's very true. But listen to this. They, for the Cubans, again, they can't afford a box of cigars. You, when, yeah. the average, when the average salary of a Cuban, you know, today maybe is $30, $40 a month, you know, a $500 box of cigars seems like ridiculous. So as much as they're all about, and they're very proud of being known for their cigars, very few people there smoke cigars. But the ones that do, there is a cigar brand that they make for the locals. And they smoke, some of them smoke cigars. And I was trying to find this, and this is years ago, and I'm like, I want to find this Cuban cigar that is made for Cubans. I really want to try this. So the first time I ever did, I, I knew what the band looked like. And um, the cigar looked like kind of those like, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood type of very um, rough on the outside, um, like, you know, like a Kentucky fry, you know, that yeah. rough, uh, rough wrapper, not a pretty looking cigar, but like a cheroo, almost like a cheroo. Exactly. So I see this guy smoking one. And I see he's got a bundle in his arm. You know, it's wrapped in this white paper. And I walk up to him and I say, can I buy one of those cigars from you? And he's like, one of these? So he literally was going to hand me one. But I said, you know what? Well, let me give you a buck for that. Now, I know you say, oh, you just gave him a buck, one dollar for a cigar. You know, you sell. When I knew for a fact that that whole bundle of 25 cigars, they're buying for a dollar. Now, I just wanted to try one, and I didn't want to take it for free, so I offered him a dollar, and his, his eyes lit up, and next thing you know, he wants to sell me the whole bundle. I didn't want the whole bundle, you know what I mean? <laughs> but he wouldn't give me just the one cigar, so finally we ended up, I gave him $10 for 10 cigars, so I bought 10 of them, which was great because I handed them out to some of my, my fellow Americans or non-Cubans that were there just to get their feeling on it. Yeah. And you know what? It was not bad. It's, <laughs> I, I'm not going to tell you it was great, but it's better than a lot of cigars that I've had in this country. Let me. Tell I was going to say, I can think of a couple of brands of cigars that I would imagine it was uh, infinitely better than, that I will not mention. <laughs> yeah, believe me, I'd rather smoke. You know, I'm thinking about that. I wish I bought some of those more than I did because I did buy a bundle. I had one of my Cuban friends like, oh, these things are fantastic. You know, so I would buy, I would pay like $10, $20. To, to the guy to bring me a bundle back, you know, I'm paying a dollar stick. I'm super happy. And this guy's happy when he would have ran, you know, uh, you know, through fire to, to buy these cigars for me. So I would buy it. I'll tell you a funny other story, Jim Robinson, and he won't, and he wouldn't even care if I told this story. Um, Jim Robinson is, he's Island Jim. He, he Island has Jim. The, the leaf by Oscar. We do the Nick and Jim cigar together. Uh, he's a well-known character in the cigar industry. But a lot of people may not know that he also happens to own a shop, and that's how he got in the cigar business in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it's called the Leaf and Bean, and that's where the whole Leaf 
my Oscar name even came about. Well, Jim makes snowbars about it where he bought these bundles and he felt the same way. Wow, these are smokable. So he bought a bunch of those and he brought them back and he sells them in his shop for like $5 a piece. And he'll tell people, he's like, you know what? You're smoking a real Cuban cigar. Now, he doesn't sell them, sell them. You know what I mean? Like he just gives them to people as a joke. And then people go, this cigar will, you know, I, I pay a dollar for 25 and you're, so he tells them what the cost of it, just to have them like freak out at how inexpensive that they are over there. You know what I mean? It's like right. so funny because, he, he, you know, he, they're just inexpensive, you know, and, and they're super inexpensive. And again, because they subsidize it for the people, but you, you got to see the reactions I get from people in Cuba. The Cubans that work in the in the shops in the cigar shops they get downright angry at me for smoking that. You shouldn't smoke that. Why? Well, they're not intended for you. And I understand their point. Maybe they're thinking that I'm taking their subsidies. I don't know, but I understand it. You know, and I don't mean to be you know callous to their to their viewpoints. And I'm like, look, I just wanted to try it. It's not like I you know I'm going to live on these things. I just wanted to try it. I buy right. the, the regular stuff, but just to give you an idea of what cigars cost there, but getting back to, they get five free cigars and then they sell them on the street. And if you're lucky, you can, you get there. Now you get the Cuban that works in a restaurant. And uh, there's one of my favorite restaurants. There is a place um, that's got literally the best chicken um, that it's, it's amazing. And it's called El Hibe. El Hibe. And if you go to Cuba or you find yourself in Cuba, make sure you go to El Ajibe. It's one of the most famous. We, we just know it as the chickens, the chicken place. And they have all-you-can-eat chicken and uh, for a price. It's not super cheap. It's like American pricing, but it's really good. It's really, really good. And that's why it's like usually the first night, the first stop, just to set the tone, my tours go there. And again, the staple food is, you know, rice and beans and chicken. So right. it's a great meal. But the people that I've talked to and I've gotten to know at that restaurant over the years, they are some of the wealthiest people in Cuba. There are doctors, lawyers that have given up their practices to work there. If you can get that job, you're set. And the reason wow. you're set is for a couple of reasons. One, they make tips. You know, now they always tell me, you know, they're one of the few places too that now it's starting to be a trend where on the receipt it'll say tip the tips are included, like they do in some European countries. They'll add 10%. And I'm like, oh well, they're getting a tip. And what kind of ticks me off in the US is when I see something like that, I generally like I don't like it. I like to give my own tip and I'm usually over tipped. But when they already have a tip that's included, I'm like, well, that's all they want from me. Then, all right, fine. But anyway, there you see it. But the first thing they'll tell you is they go, oh, but we don't get any of that tip money. I'm like, well, why is it? Like, the government gets that. That's just their way of getting more money. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but who who knows? So right. you, tip, you tip more. But they get they do very, very well because the place is always packed, always busy. And so if they're getting tipped the way I think they're getting tipped, man, they're doing fine. The other great thing about working in a restaurant there is they take food, you know? So what easier way to make sure you always have food at home if you can take food with you. So yeah. any restaurant, anybody that works in the industry of, of restaurants or food, obviously that's simple. They have 
food that they're stealing to eat. I had a, a Catholic priest one day in Cuba tell me that, you know, stealing is a sin, but in Cuba it's a necessity and they don't view it the same way because that's the only way they can eat. Wow. And I'm like, yeah. wow. Okay. And that's what really made me start thinking about this whole, you know, I work to steal. And then anybody that I talk to, no matter what industry or what, uh, you know, part of the, the working class there, they were stealing to eat. And I would try to, to me, it was almost like a game after a while. I'm like, well, how are these guys making money? And I would, cause it started off when I would see a guy and he would tell me, yeah, I'm here. I'm working, you know, from eight in the morning to nine at night. And at the end of the day, I'll get a dollar. And I'm like, a dollar? You can live on a dollar? Oh, no, it's it's hardly. I'm like, so what motivates you to get out of bed? Why do you even bother to come to work for a dollar when you can't even get food for that? Right. And they're like, my friend, if I don't work, and this is where it came from. He goes, if I don't work, I can't steal. If I can't steal, I can't eat. So I need to work to steal, to eat. Mm. And it really hit home. And I go, wow, okay. If you don't work, then you don't have the opportunity to be able to take what is availed to you in whatever job you have in order to make enough. And I think if the Cuban government, like here's what I understand, Cubans in general, super smart. They're, they're resilient. All these qualities I've talked about on the show, well, how come the government can't figure it out? They gotta know what's going on. Well, and I think that's a good segue into where I kind of wanted to uh, finish the show with, and that is, like, we all saw in the news last year in the middle of the pandemic, like, um, there were there were these protests in Cuba against the government, against the communist uh, uh, party, against the regime. Nothing, nothing happened with that. Like, nothing ever came of that, and it just kind of once you know it, it popped up. And it was there, and now it's gone off the news. Nothing happened with that. Nothing happened with that as far as news-wise. Like, we didn't see anything else. It was there are protests, and then as quickly as we saw there were protests, like, the news cycle changes, and we don't know what happened. Like, what happened with that? Where where are the Cuban people today with that? I'll tell you what happened with that. Um, First of all, what makes that so unique is prior, I mean, things have been kind of escalating. It started with the internet access there and people's access to news and word outside of Cuba. And again, that's a whole nother topic. But prior to this and through the years, you have to understand that Cuban people weren't even allowed to conjugate together or congregate together because you, you literally had to have a license to go on the street corner and talk baseball with your friends because they didn't wow. want people together because people together they realize what happened to their own how the, the government of Cuba, I mean, Fidel with his 13 original guys you know off uh, the boat the grandma off of Mexico you know that's the big story but the point is people together is problem could potentially be a problem and every neighborhood has their own version of the CDC which is the Cuban defense CDL or whatever the Cuban defense league um, and that's really their own instituted eavesdropping on their own people so you could rat out your own neighbors if they're talking against the the government there. So the cameras, the systems that are in place, um, next to none, they've used technology to another level to keep track of the Cuban people. So when this happened, you have to understand the sheer sake of despair 
when the, the level of lack of food, you know, Trump cut off remittance from families. So getting money into the country has become very difficult where I used to be able to be as an American, Cuban American with family, you were able to Western Union money to their to your uh, families in Cuba. So they stopped that. So there's other ways to get around that. But the problem is there's nothing going there. There's no planes going there. There's no resources. People were really starving. Then you have yeah. the pandemic. This is all during the pandemic. People are dying. So the, the level of despair just got to a level. And, and that's one thing I want to mention, you know, that even though I, I said that, you know, Cubans are so friend and gregarious and, uh, and loving, what they don't talk about is that the level of um, suicide rates there is like twice what the U.S. Because wow. what you don't see, you know, you see everybody there, you know, kissing one another and uh, playing baseball and being very fun and loving. But what you don't see under the surface, there's a sadness and the ultimate dissatisfaction that they feel, you know, even though they're on the outside, they put on this, this, you know, this facade of being so nice and everything is great. You know, when I heard, you know, the suicide rate is, is nearly twice that of the United States and that the biggest cause of death for Cubans between the age of 15 and 45 is suicides. These people feel the despair that they're trapped by the economic and political restrictions, and they unfortunately see suicide as the only answer. So there is right. a sadness there. But, you know, this, this, these protests, for these protests to have happened, when, when the country is normally scared to even say the word... I've joked about this on the air because it cracks me up, but where they don't even say Castro. You can't say the word Castro. They do one of these look left and right. If they're going to whisper the name of Castro or even better, they make this stroking motion on their on their chin and they which means the bearded one or they'll even say, you know, the bearded one. And I'm like, who, who who's the bearded one? I, I, you know, it's like, oh, oh, OK. I mean, that's <laughs> the fear because and it's not just paranoia. They know they're constantly being watched. They know that as much of the police that you see out on the street, and there's a lot of them, there's four times that in plain clothes or secret police, what they call the Heidos, that do all the other, it's like they're CIA, but they're following everybody and watching everybody. They're among them, and they're the rats that go back to the governments to keep the people that start talking against the government or start saying something. They, they, they snub it out real fast. And the people are scared. They don't want to open their mouth because they don't want to go to jail. So what happened with this? You know, I read this article and, and um, I wish I could remember all the statistics, but I can tell you this. They had trials of I know there was over 500 people imprisoned under the age of 16, even. Uh, and then over a lot of them on house arrest, but they they arrested like over 2,000, 3,000 people. Some of them are going to see big, big time, you know, for it. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot that was going on. You don't hear about that in the U.S., but most of the people that were arrested, some, you know, were beaten while they were arrested. But they have a system with cameras and things like that. They went after it and they wanted to go after the ones to set an example. So, yeah, they cracked down. It was a step in the right direction, but we it was a great opportunity for America. I mean, they're always talking about 
America lived for this kind of thing. And yet when it actually happened, the closest it happened, we did absolutely nothing yeah. when it happened. Well, and, and you know, we could talk about politics all day long, but like you said in the last episode, like, you know, they're getting a lot of money from China right now. And we don't want to rock the boat with China. So if we go in and, and, and help them, I mean, it, there's a lot of political ramifications. And honestly, I, I don't think I'm smart enough to talk about how, what we should do or how we should do it. All I know is this, is that, that these are some of the, the greatest, most friendly and giving people, which honestly mirrors my experience with the cigar community, you know, it, which I think is great because... Cuba is, you know, the birthplace of cigars. It is the it is the mecca, so to speak, uh, for cigars. And so I think that it's great that, you know, worldwide cigar enthusiasts and aficionados kind of mirror what the Cuban people are, whether they're friendly and they are giving and they are gracious and they are they they love to to share their passions. And I I, I don't know how to help these people other than talk about them. And because, you know, we can't we can't buy Cuban cigars here in the U.S. We'll talk about that coming up in one of the next episodes. We're going to talk about the the attitudes of those in the industry here in in the United States and and abroad towards uh, Cuban cigars. And I think you kind of touched on that a little bit uh, last episode uh, as well, Nick. But I I know that that it, it is a touchy subject for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons but the bottom line is the people in in cuba are again they find themselves uh you know under the thumb of an oppressive regime and the pawn in a political game that honestly is probably a no-win situation for them so if you want to go ahead no i was just going to add one last thing you know this despair you have to understand, like right now, we're feeling, you know, inflation here in the states, and you know, the, we, the you're always hearing the, the, you know, the food chain uh, and um, everything else that's going on, and not having any products. Well, think of that times like a thousand in Cuba. Uh, our inflation rates, I think they were saying, was about seven percent, and this is a a published statistic. This is not a joke. The figures published by the Cuban government, place inflation at 77%. Wow. So they couldn't afford it before. And now it's 77% more. You know, people are like constantly telling me, Nick, when are you going to start tours again? When are we going to go back? We want to go back. And I'm like, guys, I don't know what anything costs. I don't know what anything even if it's still open or any businesses that we, I used to use, you know, restaurants and, and things still open. You know, when I, you know, I'm constantly in, in contact with people there, one, one statistic that I heard that just kind of spells it out is a bottle of beer there that used to be about a dollar for your average Cuban would be a, a dollar a beer. That now is $14. Jesus. So, oh, wow. A lot of, a lot of um, people are constantly contacting me. When can we go back? When can we, you know, I want to, I, I want to put a tour together. And, you know, the reality is until I go back and assess the situation and see what everything ends up costing, are the, the, the restaurants that I, I dealt with or even others are still in business? Probably not. You know, so I have no idea of what things cost and what the thing's going to be like. But I do plan on visiting in the next month or so and figuring it out. But, 
you know, I'll be able to give you more information once I go back. And it's so weird for me because it's been so long, uh, having been right. there practically every month for 12 plus years to not have been on the island this March, it'll mark two years of me not being there. And uh, I, I really want to go back. So, you know what? I think it would be, uh, it would be awesome if like when you come back, if you can find the time to uh, sit down with me and talk like candidly about what you saw on the island and what has changed and how the pandemic has affected it. I think that would be a lot of fun. And we can just add that to this, to this series uh, uh, on uh, Cuban cigars. Hope you do it. Excellent. Nick Sears, LH cigars, uh, great brother of the leaf expert, master blender, uh, uh, Cuba. I, I'm just going to keep calling you master blender from now on. Yeah, I the only thing you. I want to put out there for anybody who wants to get in touch with me, wants to find out some information about my cigars, where to buy them. Um, if you could just throw out the LH cigars.com, you can send me a uh, email from there, Facebook, Instagram, everything else. LH cigars is the handle. You can find me and I, and I will personally respond to them. So, yep, absolutely. Uh, it's in the show notes, uh, at the, at the bottom there. It's always in the show notes. You can check it out. All you gotta do is click on that LH cigars. It'll take you right to his website. Uh, and I'll make sure I put all of your social media in there as well. So they can get a hold of you. Uh, but Nick Sears, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Can't wait to talk to you next time where we're going to talk about, uh, the, the history of the Cuban cigar, where it came from, how it's evolved. Uh, and then kind of just probably go into a discussion about the history of cigars altogether. Uh, and then up to where Cuban cigars are now and where we see them in the future. I'm looking forward to that episode, Nick. Well, it gets into what uh, we're all here for, cigars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Smoke cigars and, and, and create some relationships and network a little bit. Nick Sears, thank you so much. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for joining me for this special sub-episode, the sub-series episode of, of Cuban People. If you'd like to find out more, you can email Nick. You can email me. Uh, and uh, we will definitely reach back out to you. That's going to do it for this time. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next time where Nick and I will be talking about the history of the Cuban cigar, uh, so I know exactly what we're talking about. And as always, it'll be Simply Stogies. Stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Visit simplystogies.com for the latest articles and reviews. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest in video content, and please rate and review Simply Stogies on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. If you have a question or suggestion for James or would like to be on the show, please send an email to info at simplystogies.com. The views and opinions expressed by James and his guests are their own and do not reflect those of Creative Brain Candy or their affiliates.